You may turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk, chapter 2. We just had read to us three wonderful passages of Scripture which provide the Holy Spirit's commentary on Habakkuk, chapter 2. Those passages were Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 51, and Daniel chapter 5, and they are three of many. For much of your Old Testament is dedicated to God's warning of the judgment that the Babylonians would bring upon Judah, and then what he would do to Babylon after he was through using them. He uses nations because he is the king of nations. There are two Babylons in the Bible. There's the Babylon of the Old Testament that's very identifiable geographically, politically, situated there on the Euphrates River in what we would call Iraq. Then there is mystery Babylon, which is the enemy of God's people of the New Testament. And it's called a mystery because it's harder to figure out, but not much. It's the Roman Catholic Church. According to the book of Revelation, according to Daniel chapter 7, another Babylon would arise, which would, for 1260 years, make war against the saints of the Most High God and wear them out. But he would, God would come in vengeance upon that enemy as well. And so all her merchants would stand and wonder how the mighty Babylon could have been overthrown and is no longer an important city of the earth like it once was. But we're in Habakkuk of the Old Testament. However, I want you to remember that when you read about Babylon of the Old, there's a Babylon of the New as well. And it was a mystery and it caused great wonder to John as he looked at it how a church could become the enemy of the saints of God and make all the nations of the earth drunk with her fornication, which was a religious fornication. The book of Habakkuk. God has led us to this study because this book teaches us faith. This book tells us that even if God brings the judgment, those who are just and live by faith shall be saved. Did you like that one verse in Jeremiah 51 where it said that Judah and Israel would be saved in spite of God's chastening judgment? Jeremiah and others were saved in the destruction of Jerusalem. And we want to be saved if God brings judgment on our nation. The United States of America should be judged and should be judged severely. And that judgment will most likely affect our lives and affect our lives severely. And yet, we can be delivered in the midst of it and have pleasant lives and rejoice before the Lord our God. And that's the lesson of Habakkuk. We want to live by faith. We want to trust the God of judgment when He brings judgment upon us, chastening, correcting judgment, and when He judges our enemies. We want to see His affair in all, His hand in all the affairs of nations. And we want to prepare ourselves that though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. Though He take away every cent I have, yet will I trust in Him. Though He take away my children, my spouse, my health, yet will I trust in Him. Are you prepared to do that? And not only will we trust in Him, Habakkuk was better than Job. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Not only will I trust Him, but I will rejoice in what He does. He can take away everything He wants. He 
is my portion in this life. And I will delight and be content and rejoice in the face of any adversity. That's the lesson of Habakkuk. You know how it ends. You've read it a couple times now at least, I hope. And you love those last three verses of the third chapter, which we'll get to in the second assembly, because they summarize the attitude and the profession of Habakkuk. We come to chapter 2. The first chapter, verses 1 through 4, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, were Habakkuk's complaint about the wickedness going on in Judah and why God was not doing anything about it. God's answer was in verses 5 through 11. I will do something about it. I will send the Chaldeans. We have the hint, the interpretive hint, the helpful key in verse 6 of chapter 1 that tells us about the Chaldeans. Every chapter that you had read to you this morning told you who overthrew Babylon. It was the kingdom of Media. The Medes and the Persians came together in a confederacy of nations and overthrew Babylon. The Bible tells us that. Bible history is not that difficult if you'll read the Bible and be in a church where it's preached. And that we have it read and preached in our church is by the grace of God. It is by the grace of God only. But it's world history is easy if we'll read and know our Bibles. So verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1 were God's promise of sending the swift armies, the terrible and dreadful and cruel soldiers of the Chaldean armies to destroy Jerusalem and Judah and the temple. Habakkuk in verse 12 puts his trust in the Lord for he understands that this is not to be the terminal event of the nation of Israel, but it's for chastening and for correction. And we shall not die, he says in verse 12, where he's putting himself along with the other Jews as the faithful. We shall not die. We shall not be annihilated or exterminated. We'll go into captivity, but it's for our correction as a nation. And in verses 13 through 17, Habakkuk asks the Lord, how can you use such a wicked nation to punish your people? They are profanely idolaters, and that's all they have ever been. How can you be using more wicked men to chasten your own children? That brings us to chapter 2, and the Lord's going to answer him. We want to see the hand of God in every aspect of our lives. If He raises up an enemy in our own house, He raised it up. Do you all understand that? If He raises enemies up out of our own midst in this church, He raised them up. He will take care of us. We put our trust in Him. We fear Him. We love Him. We believe Him. We rejoice in Him. We make Him our strength and our joy. And we let nothing move us. Ever. Jesus said, I am not come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Do you believe that? Then God is fulfilling prophecy in your life. Keep your trust in Him. He is measuring how much you love Him. Because if any man love father or mother, husband or wife, son or daughter, 
more than me, they are not worthy of me. And the Lord has a way of finding out how much you love Him. You take a stand for truth and you will have family turn against you. We have a young man who will join this assembly after this sermon who is taking a stand against his family on the doctrines of election and predestination and the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners that we believe here. Let us be faithful. You can see that chapter 1, verse 17 ends with a question mark. Habakkuk is asking, Lord, if you do not judge these wicked men, they're just going to continue in their course of wickedness. We live in a wicked nation. We should be crying out from our hearts some of the very same things that Habakkuk cried. That he cried in the first few verses about why those who call themselves Christians live such a pitiful, worldly, compromising existence. And then why those who have set themselves against Christianity are allowed to get away with it. So we answer the question. We come to chapter 2. We do not need to be long. What we need to be is serious about God's Word. He is going to tell us in this second chapter, but the just shall live by his faith. No matter what I drop on the nation of Judah, no matter how severe it is, no matter how cruel and rapacious and swift their armies are, the just will survive. And the just will survive by faith in me. Because the Lord is in His holy temple. Amen. Let all the earth, Babylon and Jerusalem, keep silence before Him. Habakkuk chapter 2 is divided this way. In verses 1 through 4, the prophet gets his answer from God as to why he is using the wicked nation of the Chaldeans to punish his own people. In verses 5 through 19, we have five woes. Those woes are God listing the sins of Babylon that He hasn't missed them. And He's telling Habakkuk, don't worry, I am of purer eyes than to behold iniquity approvingly. I know their sins and there are five woes. You can see the word woe in verse 6, in the middle of the verse. In verse 9, it begins the verse. It begins 12, it begins 15, and it begins 19. And those are five categories of sins that God holds Babylon accountable for. And so He overthrew them in one night by Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. Let us take the first four verses. Verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what He will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. This is Habakkuk. He has stated his question in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 1. Lord, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem righteous that you are using such a wicked nation to punish your people. And you right now are basking in freedom and liberty, pleasure and prosperity in this country. And the Lord can take it all away. He can rip it away faster than you can imagine. And if... 
or when it comes. Trust Him. No matter how much those that may destroy us from the inside or the outside hate God, He will judge them as well. The Lord doesn't miss a thing. And so Habakkuk says in verse 1, I am going to take myself to my vigilant duty as a watchman for the house of Judah, and I'm going to wait for the Lord and what He's going to say to me about His use of such a nation to punish us. And I am going to wait for His answer so that I shall know how to answer those that reprove me when I am reproved. The first verse, when it speaks of how I shall answer when I am reproved, is not Habakkuk worrying about God reproving him. It's him worried about Jews reproving him for his message. Babylon isn't going to destroy us. We've got the temple of the Lord. The Lord's not going to mess with His own house. He's going to preserve our nation. We're going to have peace. If you've ever read the books of Isaiah or Jeremiah, you know that was the spirit of the Jews. They were going to have peace and nothing was going to happen to them. And these doomsdayers, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, were wrong. But Habakkuk is saying, I'm waiting for an answer so that I can answer those that reprove me when I am reproved. He hadn't done anything wrong, and the Lord doesn't rebuke him in the least. The Lord doesn't reprove him in the least. The Lord just explains what I just told you is certainly going to happen, which brings us to verse 2. And the Lord answered and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. The judgment that he had described in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, God's promise to send the Chaldeans to punish his people for their sins would most definitely come to pass. And the Lord commanded Habakkuk, you make sure that you write the vision that I gave you. Don't you be slack about this. Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. The most important thing a minister can do when he handles the Word of God is not to entertain. The most important thing he can do is to make it plain. Amen. The best compliment you can ever give an honest man of God is... I understood the reading and teaching of God's Word. I understand that book. I understand that chapter. I understood those verses. The Apostle Paul said, knowing the importance and the superiority of the New Testament, he said, therefore we use great plainness of speech. True Bible preaching is not entertaining. It's not storytelling. It's not illustrating. It is reading the Word of God distinctly and giving the sense and causing people to understand the reading. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 tell us that is what Bible preaching is. And when you go look at Paul in the book of Acts or any of his epistles, he takes the Word of God and gives a sense for it, a sense to it, so that we can understand even Old Testament statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not an art form of entertaining. It's not the charisma of a pastor. It is the Word of God that feeds the soul of men. 
man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the Lord told Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 2, write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. You make it so plain and simple that they will understand the destruction that is coming from the Lord and that they can do something about it. They can recognize what their responsibilities will be and they can do it. They can run. The verse does not say, so that he that readeth may run. You would be surprised at how many commentators want to interpret Habakkuk 2.2, so that he that readeth may run. So that he that runneth may read. Meaning, make it big enough that you can keep on running while you're reading. You know, which is just such a joke, there's no lesson there for anyone. The lesson is that when you read it, you'll get the message very quickly, very plainly, and you'll know the conclusion of what you ought to be doing so that you can go run in preparation for the judgment that was coming. Because verse 3 goes on to say, The vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak. It shall not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. I I love the Word of God. The Holy Spirit has given men the rope to hang themselves in most every verse. Verse 3 has the word tarry in it, and it says that this vision will tarry, and then it says this vision will not tarry. And so we have Paul telling Timothy to rightly divide the Word of Truth. While it's going to tarry for a little while, it will not tarry too long. It will come. It will most Surely come. So the first answer of the Lord to Habakkuk's question is verse 2. Make it plain so that everyone that reads it can understand the vision that you've been given and what they ought to do to prepare for Babylon overthrowing Judah. The second point is in verse 3. It will most definitely come even though there might be a short delay in timing. It is coming. And here's the third answer. Verse 4, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The Apostle Paul quotes the just shall live by faith in several places in the New Testament. The words the just shall live by faith do not tell us how we're born again. They do not tell us how we get life. They tell us how the just are supposed to live. We walk by faith, not by sight. The just, those who have already been justified, are to live by faith. Those who God has made just by the free grace and mercy in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ are to face each day of their lives by faith. They are to live a faith-based existence, looking at those things which are not seen rather than the things which are seen. But that isn't Habakkuk's point at all. Habakkuk's point is, I bring the Babylonians upon Judah. And the just will survive by their faith and trust in me. I am chastening the nation, but those who are faithful will be preserved. Now the first half of verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. We have a choice to make in interpretation. His soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. 
is that the Jews or the Chaldean king? I choose the Chaldean king for these reasons. Verse 11 of chapter 1 has already said that this king will change his mind and shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Nebuchadnezzar changed. Nebuchadnezzar grew in pride. We had it read to us. From Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 51, and Daniel chapter 5 already. And then in verse 16 it says that these Chaldeans would offer sacrifices to their nets and their drags because they were putting confidence in their own gods. So they're going to offer sacrifices to them. The other reason I choose the Chaldean king is because of verse 5, where it says, Yea, also, because he, the singular male pronoun there, connected by a yea, also, meaning there are two things under consideration. So the contrast of verse 4 is thus. Habakkuk, make the vision plain, because the vision is most certainly coming. And I am of pure eyes than to behold iniquity approvingly. I already see the heart of the king of Babylon lifted up against me, and I will judge it. But the just shall live by his faith. Every man, whether in Judah or taken captive in Babylon, can live and survive my judgment by faith. And that is one of the lessons we want from the book of Habakkuk. No matter how terrible God's judgment may be on America, no matter how much God may try our church, no matter how much God may try you and your family, the just shall live by His faith. And that His faith is not God's faith, and it's not Christ's faith. It's His faith. It's the man's faith who puts his trust in the Lord. The Apostle Paul did not take those words and apply them to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. He applied them to the man who lives and walks by faith. His faith is that man's faith. And that's how they survived. They survived the overthrow of the city of Jerusalem, and they, over, and they survived while they were captive in Babylon. And that is the first section, God's answer to Habakkuk. And then he elaborates and describes why and how he will judge Babylon in verses 5 through 19. Let's quickly look at the five woes. The first woe is in verses 5 through 8. Let me read them to you. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, and now we are at the king of Babylon, and the Babylonians viewed through him. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his? How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay, shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee? and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee, because of men's blood, 
and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. This is woe number one, and it's for the drunken greed and insatiableness of the king of Babylon. He was not content to mind his affairs at home. He was going to enlarge his kingdom and swallow up every other nation that he possibly could. The Bible says that there is several, there are several things that are never satisfied. Like the barren womb in Proverbs chapter 30, but the grave is one of them that is never satisfied. And here in the middle of verse 5 when it says that he enlargeth his desire as hell and is as death and cannot be satisfied, the prophet is appealing to the fact that death is never full. Someone else will die today and someone else will die tomorrow. The grave never says it is enough. And the king of Babylon never said it is enough. He didn't mind his business back in Babylon. That's why it says, neither keepeth he at home. He doesn't stay at home and run the affairs of his nation. All he wanted to do was swallow up other nations and gather and heap up those people as part of his empire. And so in verse 6, the proverb is made, the parable is made by his enemies. And it runs like this. Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. Exclamation point in your King James Bibles. How long? How long do you think you can get away with it, O king of Babylon? Woe to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. O king of Babylon, how long do you think you can get away with all your injustice and violence that you have done to other men? This is the prophet speaking prophetically, raising up a parable and a proverb from the enemies of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, you're not going to get away with this. You're not going to get away with this. Woe to the man that increaseth that which is not his. You can't live by thievery all your life. You may get away with it once. You may get away with it twice. But you will not last for long. How long do you think you're going to last wronging every man in your empire? They will turn against you. And why do you think you're going to be protected by him that ladeth himself with thick clay. There's a mockery of his riches and his fortifications, just referring to it as clay. The gold and silver of the Babylonians was really nothing but hardened clay, and the great walls of their cities were nothing but hardened clay. They're not going to be enough, because every man is going to be against you for the violence you've done to their nation. Verse 7 says, Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee? And awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them. You made all their assets your booty. Booty is plunder, spoil, and the prey taken in battle. You took everything else that belonged to other nations. Don't you think that they're going to be unhappy being poor? And they're going to rise up and take your things for their booties. Obvious. This is a judgment for his insatiableness. Verse 8, because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. All the children that are left of the nations you have ravished are going to come and spoil you for what you've done to them. And they're going to do it because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. You will be judged for your violence. This is the prophecy of God speaking through the nations that He would use 
to devour Babylon. See, Israel didn't go and defeat Babylon. God defeated Babylon with some other pagan nations of the world. God raises up pagan nations and He dashes them down by using other pagan nations against them. The Jews got to come back and rebuild under Nehemiah and Ezra, Zerubbabel. But Cyrus of the Persians and Darius of the Medes overthrew that great city and consumed it. We come to the second woe in verse 9, describing the covetousness of this man and taking things that did not belong to him. Verse 9, Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Nebuchadnezzar and you Babylonians, your covetousness that you have engaged in to build your house and to set your nest on high, thinking that you can be delivered from evil, it is not enough. It will be taken from you because it was stolen. The great city of Babylon, with its huge walls, one of the great wonders of the world, was like an eagle's nest made on high to protect it from any that would raid the nest. And so Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians thought if they built their city securely enough, now think about it, it was 25 miles per side. You've never seen anything like it. It had the river Euphrates running through it for water. It had the hanging gardens of Babylon for food. The wall was 300 feet high and could take two chariots side by side drawn by four horses. They could meet and pass with a tower, several, about 10 towers per mile. 200,000 men a day would be laboring on that wall. They built that city thinking that they were going to protect themselves from the power of evil. Meaning, no trouble is going to get us here in Babylon. Until one night in a drunken stupor, they left the gates open that went down into the waters of the Euphrates. And Cyrus the Persian and his engineers diverted the waters into the desert. And the army marched into that city on the dry riverbed. And while... Belshazzar is up there with 1,000 of his lords mocking the God of Israel and praising the gods of the heathen. The Lord came out and wrote to him that tonight is your last night and his loins were loosed. If you need an interpretation of that, see me afterwards. His loins were loosed because the God of heaven was taking him that night while he raised a chalice from the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and made a toast to the gods of the heathen. Darius and Cyrus were taking the city and surrounding the palace where he was located. And that night, Belshazzar was slain. They did not protect themselves from the power of evil because Cyrus and Darius took it in one night and the Medes took the kingdom. Verse 10, Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. You do not understand. Most men do not understand until the Bible tells them, when you sin, when you pursue wickedness, it is to bring it down on your own pate. 
That's the Bible word in Psalm chapter 7. It's to bring it down on your own head. This man, by going out and doing violence against others, brought that same violence down on his own head. Because verse 11 means that the stones that you stole, the stones that you killed men to get your hands upon, the young men that you took by killing those around them, those stones are crying out and the timbers are answering because of the blood that was shed for them. You have built your city out of blood and that blood is crying out for vengeance. It's just as when the Lord said about Abel, His blood crieth out to me from the ground. The stones and the timbers were crying out that they had been purchased at the price of the blood of men. And that vengeance was coming upon Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 12 should help you understand that. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. There's the explanation for verse 11. The stones and the timbers are testifying against the bloody violence of the Babylonian Empire in acquiring those assets. Verse 12 is the third woe that God speaks against Babylon. Just think of Habakkuk. He has asked, Lord, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold iniquity approvingly. How can You use the Chaldeans to chasten Your good people, the Jews? Are You missing their sins? And here Habakkuk is getting this long list of five great woes that God hasn't missed a thing. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These three verses are describing God's judgment upon Babylon. Though they had tried to set their nest on high, it was not high enough because God took the city. In verse 13, is it not of the Lord of hosts that would make all their efforts in vain as if they were laboring in the fire that burned up their city? Babylon only lasted a short while. Babylon was only a kingdom for 70 and a few extra years beyond that. Nebuchadnezzar in the first year of his reign came against Judah with the first captivity. And in 70 years it was overthrown according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts? Is this not agreeable with His character that the people shall labor in the very fire? All the efforts to build that city were as if they were laboring to toss the effort into a fire because He burned it all up. And to labor in very vanity. They were building something for nothing. All of their efforts to build that beautiful, huge, impregnable city that could not be taken was taken in one night because is it not of the Lord of hosts that would turn something so significant into vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think waters cover the sea rather thoroughly. And the statement here is that God was going to get Himself glory by overthrowing the city that said, I shall sit a lady forever. I shall be the queen of the earth forever. And God overthrew her in one night. Did everyone know who had overthrown the city of Babylon? Yes, they did. 
Because Cyrus the Persian said, the God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Now all those of his people who would like to go back to Jerusalem and build, you are welcome to go. All the earth knew that Cyrus had been appointed by the God of Israel, Jehovah Himself, to take that kingdom. And the glory of God by that judgment. And there are a pile of verses I could turn you to to show you the glory of the Lord in this event. Many of you love the 40s of the book of Isaiah. Meaning the chapters 40 through 49. The character in those chapters is predominantly Cyrus. He's named in chapters 44 and 45. And if you will go read about Cyrus, you will find out that Cyrus was God's servant for God to get him glory in the destruction of Babylon. Just like God got himself a name and a reputation by destroying Pharaoh. The whole earth that has ever come in contact with any truth knows the story of what happened to Pharaoh in Egypt under the judgment of God. And God got Himself a name by overthrowing that great monarch. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? And after a few appetizers in the land of Egypt, he met the Lord in the middle of the Red Sea. When the chariot wheels came off, And he drove his prized chariot without wheels. Or he tried to drive his prized chariot without wheels because the Lord overthrew him and got himself a name. And you know the Bible tells us in both Testaments that God raised Pharaoh up for one purpose. That I can get myself a name and glory upon destroying him. And God did that with Babylon. And so this 14th verse is describing the whole earth is going to know how great the Lord God of Israel is, how great Jehovah is, by His astounding smashing of the city of Babylon. The fourth woe, verse 15. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid, because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Verses 15-17, through three more verses, with the fourth woe against Babylon. Babylon was known for its drunkenness. You can read about the Assyrians drinking themselves drunk in their pavilions. And the Assyrians were assimilated by the Chaldeans to become the Babylonian Empire. You read about Belshazzar drinking with all of his lords when the Persian army was only a short distance away from Babylon. That isn't the time to be drinking. It's the time to be strategizing. But they were drunkards. Do you remember when Daniel got to Babylon? How important it was that all the young men be fed the wine and meats of Babylon. He's a drunkard. And he used that wine to intoxicate other rulers and shame them sexually and extort them into total submission to him as a ruler. And God is judging them for woe woe number four in these three verses. 
Nebuchadnezzar had uncovered other men's nakedness. God was going to uncover his. Nebuchadnezzar had forced a cup to men's lips to make them drunken. The Lord is going to force a cup to his lips to make him drunk. But it's not going to be wine. It's going to be the fury of his wrath. Verse 17 says, For the violence of Lebanon, the violence that you poured out upon others shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts shall cover thee. The spoil of beasts which made them afraid. When the Chaldeans came through and ran into animals they did not want to take back, they just slaughtered them. If you've ever seen a beast that's about to be slaughtered, especially if it's part of a herd, I'm not talking about sheep. And even sheep can be terrified as well. But the terror of animals that are being slaughtered, that terror is going to come upon you, O Babylon. The spoil of beasts which made them afraid. Just slaughtering animals. That terror is going to be brought upon you, Babylon. The violence of Lebanon is going to cover you, Babylon. And the reason is given in the last half of verse 17, because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell therein. These are the same words from verse 8. This is the cause. Because of their violence. We come to the fifth woe. Verse 19. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols? That's a long sarcastic question. Verse 19, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake to the dumb stone. Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. Woe to Babylon. Notice, we've, we've had, this is the fifth woe. The first woe was their insatiableness. The second woe was their covetousness. The third woe, in verse 12, was their violence. The, fifth, the fourth woe was their drunkenness that they brought upon others to use them, to blackmail them, to deceive them. And then the fifth woe, they're worshiping the wrong God and the Lord just mocks them. Are you familiar with Isaiah 44, 9-20 that I've taught you so many times about the man with a tree trunk left and he takes one-third of it to cook his food and to eat he takes another third to warm himself, and the Holy Spirit actually gives us, ah, ah, remember, A-H-A, over the fire. And then he says, listen, I've got some leftover wood. I think I'll make myself a god and fall down to it and worship it. And the Lord mocks them. The Lord says they've got a lie in their right hand. They cannot deliver themselves. Here he does that in just two verses. He says, what profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? Why would anyone make a graven image and call it a god? It can't do a thing. It's a dumb idol. It can't speak. It can't do anything. Oh, great King Nebuchadnezzar and great King Belshazzar. These idols that you're trusting in can do nothing. Why would you even make them? Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! Look at the Lord mocking idolaters. Fall down to the totem pole. Wake up! Say something to me! You know, I keep praying to you, but you never say anything back to me. Woe to the person that would ever pray and speak to a chunk of wood or to the stone. 
Arise. Teach us something. They have no gods. And so because of their idolatry, knowing that there's a Creator God in heaven by the testimony of the creation, because a chunk of wood, remember, this is how the Lord reasoned, if you get tired making your God, then what can your God do since you got tired even making Him? Isaiah 44. What can these idols do? They can do nothing. And so for the sin of idolatry, which is the fifth woe, God is going to bring down His judgment upon Babylon. And here we have an answer to Habakkuk's question. Lord, Thou thou art of pure eyes and to behold iniquity approvingly. How are You letting this nation get away with what they're doing? Because if You don't stop them, will they not continue to slay nations and gather them perpetually? Will not wickedness win in the earth? Here's the answer. I see five problems with that nation. I see them clearly. And Habakkuk is given this explanation. And we come to the 20th verse. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. There is a holy God in His temple in heaven. He is Jehovah, I am that I am. He is the thrice holy God. Even a great prophet like Isaiah, seeing his glory for but a moment, would say and cry out, Woe is me! Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah chapter 6. You see the holy God that is in His temple, and all of a sudden you know that you are filthy scum. You are sinful rebels. Your mouth is polluted. Your mind is corrupt. Your feet are covered with blood. Your hands are dripping with blood when you stand before a holy God. And so this 20th verse is set in great distinction to all that's gone before it. That nation, with all of its wickedness, its profanity, its idolatry, its violence, its covetousness, its discontentment, its insatiable greed, its ambition, its cruelty... There's a holy God that will wreak vengeance on them. Don't you worry about it, Habakkuk. The Lord is in His holy temple. When you grab your newspaper and you read about the wickedness of our nation, you can say to yourselves, Habakkuk 2.20, The Lord is in His holy temple. He will judge every bit of that wickedness that you read about. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. We have no complaints. We have no questioning. Habakkuk, There's no reason to question me. I am in my holy temple and I will bring judgment upon Babylon. I will use them for a short period of time for correction and chastening and then I will judge them. This is Habakkuk chapter 2. The Lord is in His holy temple. The two most important verses in this chapter for you, verses 4 and 20. Verse 4, but the just shall live by his faith. If you want to survive the judgment of God on this nation, the judgment of God that He will bring in other ways, or the trials He's going to bring in your life, you had better live by faith every day of your lives. And what does faith mean? What does it mean? It means to remember that the Lord, Jehovah, is in His holy temple. He's not missing a thing. He is sitting there and He rules over all the affairs of nations, let alone the little events of your life. He will deliver. He will save. He will protect. 
He will glorify Himself in your deliverance. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Let's love Him. Let's praise Him. Let's worship Him. Let's obey Him. And let's keep silent from ever barking, murmuring, or complaining against His providence in our lives. We can call for vengeance, but all the time believing the Lord will send it and deliver His people and will punish the proud hearts and the puffed up mouths of the wicked that fill this world. This is Habakkuk chapter 2. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word and cause the just under the sound of my voice to live by faith. Do not measure things by what you see. Measure things by what God said. And lay hold of those promises. Those precious promises. Those certain promises. That He is in His holy temple. Not missing a thing. And will deliver, provide, and protect all of us. Amen.